welcome to the Swampflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. And we are recording in our home in New Orleans, Louisiana. Whoa, an in-person episode. Honestly, it's been since March. I guess you and I last did the Kenneth Anger episode together. Mm-hmm. And all podcast recordings since have been over Skype and Zoom. So this is a, a novelty. A rare treat. And you're coming in because you are resident... Film festival correspondent. It's true. Every year, New Orleans Film Fest. I'm there. And this year, the film fest was also in our home. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, because of COVID, uh, most of the screenings for New Orleans Film Fest were digital. They're like online. Um, we actually were able to download an app for it on Roku. So we got to watch it on the TV instead of a laptop, which was nice. Yeah, that was like a really, really great work on their part uh, to to have a platform that we could view it from, from our television, because a lot of film festivals are laptop festivals right now. Um, and we have the cords. We could have hooked it up, but it's a much nicer process um, just getting to plug right in and watch. And they also like went out of their way to have like safe ish i mean as safe as you can be right now in-person screenings that were like outside and like well distanced and we actually got to see one movie in person with like a live audience which it's been months and months since that's happened to you yeah no i i I really applaud uh new orleans film fest for for all the effort they went through i I felt like it really paid off it made it a really pleasant and fun fest this year which a lot of them haven't really really had the same luster as in previous years so good job and because it was at home too we like we're able to cram in more of those like shorts packages that we normally don't always go out of our way to see in person. So we saw a lot of shorts this year. I don't want to exhaustively go through them all like we normally do because there's like too many to name. Truly. <laughs> so is there like one short that we saw at the fest that you'd like to highlight as like something special? Yeah, there was one called Flesh that I really liked. Yeah, it's it's called Flesh. Uh, Carne is the original title. It's a Brazilian film um, and it premiered at TIFF last year. It's 12 minutes long, and the director's name is Camila Cater. Uh, and you can actually see a trailer for it online. I'm not sure that the whole short is available, but it was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. There was, he talks in chapters, uh, and a different woman narrates each chapter, and it kind of goes chronologically through age. So the first segment is about a little girl and her relationship with her body and her relationship with her nutritionist mother who does not see her body as being the correct kind of body. And then it goes, you know, to like the first time a girl menstruates and then, uh, you know, being a young woman and being a middle-aged woman and being an older woman and all these different stages kind of of the woman's life. Yeah. And each segment is like very rigid where it's like there's chapter titles that are like rare, medium rare, well done, you know. Uh, yeah, it goes through the stake temperatures Yeah, uh, to notify the different, like to delineate the different chapters. And it's very much about like women's bodies being like, treat it like meat like that in a lot of ways um and in each chapter too the animation style changes along with the uh yeah that was one of the things i really loved about it was how varied the animation styles were you know they used watercolor they used pencil there was one really stunning segment that used clay so like pottery clay that rich red color that you get from terracotta uh, and then each segment is narrated by a different woman. And one thing I was a little concerned about after watching the first two segments was that this was going to really focus on, you know, cis women, only the experience of, you know, women who have placentas and ovaries. And it 
it shifted. It did start to like expand its definition. Um, so there was a trans woman who talked about her experience, and I did really like that. And then it also goes on to um, a woman who's postmenopausal. So I, I liked that they included all these different like categories of women that don't normally get included. Um, that it didn't just become turfy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is what I was afraid of at first. Yeah, that really surprised me as well. Also, it used this like animation style towards the beginning that we had just seen in The Wolf House, which is like one of our favorite movies we've seen so far this year, where they were like animating stop motion and painting on top of objects and like treating the environment and the set dressing of like a stop motion film in like a really unique way. And yeah. it's kind of cool seeing like multiple films use this technique all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was one of the great things on this was the wide variety of animation because they also did... Uh, found footage and drawing directly on film. They, you know, did some of the traditional stuff. They did clay. They did sand art. You know, pretty much any type of animation you can think of. They tried a little bit yeah. of each. And maybe because it got platformed on a TIFF uh, last year, maybe it will be available online at some point, maybe soon. I look forward to being able to pass that one around a little bit, especially if people like the experimental animation kind of media. Yeah. Uh, one that stuck out to me the most just because it kind of fit the vibe of the festival for me. I found when I was like reviewing all the movies for this fest that like I couldn't stop writing about COVID. <laughs> like it was something about, you know, being at a festival again or like watching a movie in person again or just the way the fest has changed because of COVID. Like it was just constantly on my mind every time I wrote about one of these movies. And a lot of the shorts programming we watched reflected that. A lot of like locally set, films um that were like directly commenting on the coronavirus pandemic uh and the one that like i thought was the most interesting on like a personal level was uh distant mardi gras mm -hmm. which uh, they have their own twitter page uh, and they're like promoting images from the film so if you want to like get a glimpse of like what it looks like uh you can probably even reach out to the filmmakers they're very online uh <laughs> but distant mardi gras is like it starts with these like 16 millimeter like home movie footage of carnival of Mar fat tuesday in 2020 and it's these people like narrating their personal stories of, like why they like going out to the french quarter every mardi gras costuming and like what makes new orleans so special because of that day you know things that we that's a ritual we participate in like very passionately every year yeah and then halfway through it starts rolling that footage backwards and then warping it and running it through these like nasty color filters and like turning it into almost like Rorschach test, like mirrored images and like really going psychedelic and the same subjects that are like being interviewed, start talking about how, Oh yeah, we went into coronavirus, like lockdown, like two weeks after Mardi Gras. It was such a bad idea. We were all sharing food and hugging and kissing on the cheek. And it kind of turned this like beautiful day. We all had this year into this like nightmare in retrospect. And that really hit home for me. Yeah. Obviously, when they started making this film, they had no clue about coronavirus. They were just making a 16 millimeter document about 2020's Mardi Gras. Uh, so then they had to call everybody back and say, hey, we need more interview time from you. Also, we don't have any more footage to go with this additional interview. So they got really creative with filling in that time um, in order to expand their footage yeah they maybe had like seven minutes of footage stretched over this 14 minutes short but it it never stops being interesting to look at mm -mm. and the tone shift from like beautiful warm celebration to like what did i do nightmare like feeling i 
don't know if it felt like you know that anxiety like driven on their part they were they were all like yeah i probably shouldn't have shared that piece of fried chicken with someone but neither of us got sick from it i don't know i don't know i was thinking about how like right after mardi gras like a day or two after i piled into the britannia with like an audience of elderly people for like a week solid yeah for um, french film fest Fest. um so i don't know this stuff was just very much on my mind anyway so the movie like really became a um totem of like what was already on my mind and yeah and a lot of really interesting people they interviewed for it like um a couple people that we saw in a later documentary yeah um yeah a lot of like local drag queens and like local like weirdo artists that we've seen just around the city already yeah felt like a genuine document of the community and again a couple of those drag queens are featured in one of the other documentaries we saw a little after so yeah i'm looking forward to talking about that a lot so yeah Brittany will be joining um very shortly to talk about another documentary about local artists uh valerie sassafras who's like one of her favorite people in the city And then you and I will come back and wrap up with like a few other feature films that we saw on top of these shorts. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right right now. And joining us for this segment, we have our own Brittany Lombas. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pulling you in as an expert on a topic that a uh, documentary covered at the festival. There was a film called Nobody May Come that was profiling a local celebrity of sorts, uh, <laughs> Valerie Sassafras, who I mostly know as kind of this like quirky musician that you just see playing around town at like various venues where you would not expect to see avant-garde pop novelty music but you know her more as like a fan you're like a fan of her art like you listen to her songs on purpose uh, in a way that I, I, do. I don't i'm a huge 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 sassafrasser so we were both excited about this documentary because just we were familiar with her you a little more intimately than me, than me. <laughs> and i'm kind of curious what you got out of it I, i'm gonna describe basically what the movie is it's like 90 minutes and it follows valerie sassafras around the time that she became kind of a national meme. Like I think of her as like a local New Orleans personality, kind of like a a Ruthie the Duck Lady type, just quirky persona. And she plays like really fun, energetic music that's somewhere between like Laurie Anderson style, like really highbrow art, and like Tim and Eric style like sketch comedy novelty songs. I think she's like purposefully doing something in between those two things. But she became kind of a meme. Like one of her performances of her song Girls Night Out was passed around on YouTube. And eventually she got booked on The Ellen Show and on America's Got Talent, where they basically just made fun of her as if she didn't know that she was being funny on purpose. And the documentary kind of follows her around these like smaller gigs around the city where people aren't really paying attention to her very much. And then also to these like major television show events where people are basically bullying her and making a joke out of her basically as a meme, as if she doesn't know that she's being funny. And I actually just found the movie kind of sad. Like her life just seems 
very dysfunctional and this is a, like a very intimate portrait of her and her like private life and like her reaction to being sort of like bullied by these like major television shows um so yeah i, I kind of went in wanting like a fun movie about valerie sassafras and i was kind of surprised just by how like sad i felt at the end like i i want better for her yeah I'm still kind of trying to like really get my feelings together about how I feel about this documentary because I appreciate it and I understand like the story that the, you know, directors were attempting to tell and kind of help like Valerie sort of have her life out there a little more. It was just sad that it didn't really capture like the joy that Val really does bring to a lot of people Like, Valerie Sassafras has created just this really small but amazing community. Like, I remember the first Val show that I saw, she she was opening for uh, Dave Liebehart at Siberia. And I was outside probably, like, smoking a cigarette or something because I was super unhealthy and when I was younger. Like, five years ago? Yes. (laughs) No, it was more than that. Thank God. (laughs) But, but yes, five years ago. And someone came outside and was like, everyone needs to come in right now. There's this woman doing something called the alligator dance. And I remember everyone was just kind of like, whoa. And it was so much fun. It was just this huge room full of people having like a blast and it was so much fun. And I remember thinking like, who is she? And I've, saw her trailblazer parked outside with her big magnet on it. And it's like Valerie Sassafras. And I like wrote her name down and found her website, which is um, a delight in itself. If you haven't checked it out, you should. (laughs) And I just started like, like, okay, I'm like, I have to go to the next show. And she would do a lot of shows at the St. Rock Tavern. And the first couple of shows that I saw over there, it was just me and my friend (laughs) and this other man that was like passed out in the corner and the bartender, but she put on the show, like the room was, would have had like 400 people in it. And it was just so much fun. And the more, you know, I've seen her at like tons of venues. I've seen her do, you know, brunch at like live Oak. The other day I was getting coffee at Zot's on Oak street and I could just hear girls night out blaring across the street and she's you know dancing <laughs> on oak street see that's exactly what i know her from is just like going out to like yeah. walk my dog in city <laughs> park or something and she's playing to like a brunch crowd <laughs> who has no idea what she who she is yeah or what to do with her and they're just like trying not to pay attention politely and then there's always like one or two like absolute weirdos in the crowd who like latch onto her and like get it living for it One of those is probably me. Like a lot of times, (laughs) like if I see her like at Live Oak, there is like a family atmosphere and, you know, she would pretty much play any song you request. (laughs) And, you know, some of my favorites are Babysitter, which is this filthy song about being a babysitter (laughs) and hide hide the pickle. So I'd always kind of request those. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, sure, let's do this. But yeah, like there's a lot of time where I started to see the crowd ramp up. You know, I I like I did love those intimate performances, though, (laughs) where she would, you know, she had this great scrim and would do, you know, the Laurie Anderson bits behind it. 
And it was just this mesmerizing performance. And she did lots of great things too. You know, personally, like I was having an off day and I was at Lebanon's with a bottle of wine and she was out there with her mandolin and she played like Jolie Blanc for me. And she had invited me to go to see her at the Offbeat Awards a few years ago. She's at this like, you know, venue with all these like huge like local performers and she's just killing it, killing it there. And I think the moment that I really realized that she was building this great community was when it was, um, you know, the rapper boyfriend. Yeah. It was her birthday at Tipitina's and Val was making a performance prior to like boyfriend's big entrance at like midnight. And there was this huge group of girls and, um, on the side of me and they were like singing along to like pivot and pose and hide the pickle. And <laughs> I was like, yes. And they're like, yeah, we go see her at old point bar in Algiers all the time. Like we could not miss this. And then I started to kind of see these crowds grow with like people who were like seeking her out. And they're like, that's Val like, Oh, classic Val, you know, out there doing her thing, killing it. And, you know, i brought so many people with me to these shows like my mother <laughs> I'm like you have to see her and my mom's a huge fan she's got her Valerie Sassafras coffee mug she uses daily co-workers um, one of my co-workers was pregnant and did not expect Val to come around the corner with a big fan of feathers and an accordion and she almost gave birth <laughs> in the restaurant you know I mean I just and then everyone just had such a great experience and I have so many amazing memories from Valerie Sassafras performances and I can't even count the number of times that you know I've had just an awesome experience at one of her shows whether I was meant to be there or not and I, I do know that like you know yes this documentary kind of captures you know her life isn't you know this fabulous good time you know she has personal family issues she deals with obviously and issues booking gigs and and getting appreciated at these gigs but I think that like She's such a treasure to New Orleans and people who are from New Orleans know that, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. And I kind of wish that it would have captured more of that because a lot of people that are going to be watching this might not be from New Orleans and might not know and only know her from, you know, videos that were circulating on, you know, these platforms that are run by bullies like Ellen or you know the judges on America's Got Talent I'm just like they're just gonna see like wow you know this is her life and I'm like it might be but I think that it's way more exciting at least for the performances she puts on and the appreciation out there for her art and I kind of wish it would have tapped into that a little more I will say I, I do think the movie takes her side as far as like getting bullied on television goes, she's explaining like, oh yeah, I write these songs when I'm stoned and watching SNL and I get like a funny idea. Like Mm -hmm. it's not like that. She's like an accidental joke. These are purposefully funny novelty songs. And it goes as far as to like detail her, like actual music background, kind of playing Zydeco music um, in the nineties. It looks Mm -hmm. like nineties and eighties. Yeah. So she's like a competent, self-aware person in a lot of ways oh the movie doesn't capture is like what you were saying that she has an actual fan base where like people go see her on purpose yeah it totally gets those 
guerrilla gigs she does out in the wild where no one expects her to pop up at a Piccadilly. <laughs> uh, it gets that part of her, but there's no like full rock star glam moment in this where she's like headlining a set at like one eye jacks or something where like, you know, like mm-hmm. around the time this was produced, she had this whole um, space opera like concept album come out with its own like CD release party. Yes. It could have included something <laughs> from that. To, where like, where it was like... probably it was packed. You know, I was at a few of those right. post shows and you know, what I did appreciate is at the very end, she's playing in Rivertown at, in Kenner. And there's that woman that like brings her kids there purposefully. And I think yeah. like that is a, a Val fan. Like that is what we do. <laughs> you find people who are, have no idea who she is. And you're like, I'm going to show you something that's going to like change your life forever. <laughs> and we're going to find her together, you know? Um, so I did like that. But yeah, like that woman at the end in Rivertown, her shows usually have like several of, of those women. <laughs> <laughs> It did make me want to go support her more, like, while she's around still doing this. Like, I'm like, I need to buy some merch and go yeah. see some shows. Well, she like, does a lot of, um, like, live shows where you can, you know, tip her on Venmo. And she does yeah, most of them in her right apartment. Now. Yeah, yeah. In COVID times. So, yeah, if me and a couple of friends, like, when she has a live show, we set time aside and we watch it together. And we have a lot of fun, you know, just, like, commenting back and forth and making requests And I think that she encapsulates the spirit of New Orleans so well. And she does so by singing more than just songs about Mardi Gras and like po'boys and stuff. You know what I mean? (laughs) All of her songs are about like having a fantastic time and like just not giving a shit about anything around you except for this moment that you have in this, like, you know, wherever she's playing at, no matter where it is, like, even if it's on the street, it's not in a venue anymore. You just, you're so, you're in that moment and like nothing else matters. It's very New Orleans, you know, like we're just, you know, have a good time and don't give a shit. (laughs) Yeah. She is like the physical embodiment of like weirdo local bar culture. Yeah. Like she looks like a fun late night out where you had like one too many drinks. Not that she looks rough. She just looks like that situation feels like she feels like kind of a like the kind of person you would just meet as a stranger in a bar. But she's turning that energy into like a performance Mm -hmm. and it's fun and it's funny and it's intentionally fun and funny. Right. She just wants you to be happy. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. I just wish the movie was a little happier. (laughs) Yeah. It It shows a lot of her like sad alone in her house and like basically getting stoned and like upset about uh, the way things went at whatever show, you know, the same anxieties a lot of artists get after performing. Yeah. So that was like a great, like, you know, intimate portrait and something else I kind of wanted to touch on. And I mean, I don't know who would have cared about it if the documentary would have delved into this a little more, but the importance of the Piccadilly on Jeff highway so this Piccadilly on Jeff Highway, at least growing up, like anytime, because, you know, I'm from like the Bayou. I'm not originally from New Orleans. Like I'm from down the Bayou. Anytime somebody had a doctor's appointment at Oshner on Jeff Highway, you always go to Piccadilly after. It was like a tradition. And this is like what tons of people did. And I'll never forget that there was talk when she started doing her Piccadilly performances, talk started hitting the bayou and they were like, <laughs> y'all, if you know, next time you'll have y'all doctor's appointment at Oshner, there is this woman at the Piccadilly that is just tearing it up. 
And <laughs> and I just like never really went to see her at the Piccadilly. And when I saw that, you know, the Dave Liebehart show and, and I had my first Val experience, I just like was online Googling the crap out of her. And there was one YouTube video of her Piccadilly performance and it was uploaded by a friend of my family's, <laughs> you know, it was, and I was like, wow, what a small world. Like that Piccadilly was such a hub <laughs> for locals, be, you know, locals in New Orleans and then people coming from around town. You know what I mean? Like, you know, those suburbs, the Bayou towns and things like that. So I think it was so great that she was able to perform there for so long. And I want to say like, she eventually left and the, her last performance at Piccadilly, a, a, a ton of people showed up. That's great. To support her too, which is pretty cool. And now it's a, it's a racetrack, which is. Yeah. The, the movie horrific. does drive by the Piccadilly, like in, in solemn remembrance. And she does, um, they do include some like cell phone footage mm-hmm. of her performing there. So it is included. It, it right. is kind of a small bit of the film. And I, and the film does cool stuff like that. Like it gives some nods towards a couple of things that you would really only know if you were from here for the real sass heads out there the real sass heads and also um you know the the morris bart bit (laughs) i i thought was so funny because like you wouldn't know that that guy in the picture with her who they were alluding alluding to is like morris bart (laughs) if you don't know that his his face is plastered all over town also um worth noting that she eats popeye's chicken like almost every meal there are so many trips to Popeye's drive throughs yeah. in this film. And I always, when I listen to Val, I want Popeye's. And it's because one of my favorite songs from her, Mean Sassy Queen, one of the lyrics is sitting on the levee eating Popeye's chicken strips. <laughs> and I'm like, God, that just feels so good to, you know, to sit on, <laughs> to be, a le- and I live close to the levee. So, yeah, I mean, eating Popeyes in the levee. I mean, what can you ask for? It's more of a beautiful thing. So she has like, you know, she has more of like the Zydeco-ish Cajun songs, too, that are really fun. She also has um, her own like Christmas tunes as well. But yeah, I think once her Girls' Night Out album came out is where she started to kind of delve into all this, you know, very artistic, <laughs> this, arti- <laughs> this artistic realm. It's aggressively irreverent. <laughs> like, it really is like in your face and it's hard not to smile because uh, she like actively tries to include you in it. Yeah, there are times where I've been to her shows. And so every time she plays Girls' Night Out... She she asked like three girls in the audience what their names are and she'll include it in the song. And there have been times where it was just me, the bartender and her. <laughs> so it was like Brittany, Val and whoever the bartender is. And the movie covers that, too. I think it does yeah. a good job cramming in a lot of stuff, even though it doesn't catch her like at her highest highs in a way that you would want it to. Do you have like a general positive feeling for the movie at all or is it or do you feel just sort of frustrated by how it doesn't fully capture her i guess i i liked it and you know it's one of those things like this is like an independent film so they're just doing like the best that they can with like the resources that they have and i thought it was fabulous for for that i just wish it was a little more positive on her career you know and the goodness that she brings into the world and i think that's really important to note yeah she like deserves to be 
you know, highlighted as one of like the more interesting people that are just like out and about in the city. I know it's it's when people are like, who are you talking about? I'm like, how you're going to freak out. You're going to freak out whenever <laughs> I show you who this person is. Like to me, like she is like Chris Owens level royalty here. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> she's the best. So I'm at least glad it tried to capture that and like preserve it because, yeah. you know, she might not get another chance like that. And it's also good to kind of show that, you know, even though you go out and you make this performance and everyone's happy, like, you know, what's going on in her life matters as well. And, you know, those struggles deserve to be brought to light, too. There's just multiple sequences. One minute you feel like you're in a documentary, the next minute you feel like you're in a kind of um, experimental video art piece. But the work is about essentially black women's safety, um, our bodily autonomy, how we move about in the world, how we occupy space. And if we, the question is, do we occupy that space in a safe manner? Do we feel safe as we move throughout the world? So the first movie we saw at this year's Film Fest was a 40-minute documentary. It's more like an essay film. It's like an experimental art gallery type work. And, you know, I was talking about at the top of the episode that, like, so much of the content here was, like, reminding me of COVID specifically. Yes. This movie reminded me of COVID in just that I haven't seen a movie like it because I haven't been going to Film Fest. Like, this is a capital F film festival movie. 100%. It's called The Giverney Document, and then in parentheses, single channel. It mixes a variety of like disparate footage that doesn't seem connected initially, and you, your brain has to make the connections. Like the movie doesn't really hold your hand in how all these different images and like ideas work together. But I, I think by the end, you sort of like get a grasp on what it's trying to say. Absolutely. And it was not just timely because of COVID, but also because of the protests for social justice and racial justice, you know, for George Floyd, for the other African-American people, Black people in the United States who face brutality at the hands of the white supremacist institutions. So it felt very of the moment, despite the fact that this is something that's been in the works for a couple years now. Yeah, specifically the um, police brutality footage of Philandro Castile's death that his um, girlfriend took in the car with him is a major central part of the work. Uh, that is mixed with the director. Her name's um, Jatovia Gary. She is in Monet's Gardens in France. So it keeps cutting back and forth from that police brutality footage to like these like idyllic nature shots of her sort of wandering these peaceful gardens and then getting more and more distraught as she's like disconnected from this like police footage. And then as it goes along, it starts adding in this beautiful performance from Nina Simone that's like really confrontational with her audience. And then there's this 90s style news reporter who's like asking specifically black women on the street in New York, like, do you feel safe in your body in the world? And when she was flagging them down, she's like, Hey, do you want to be in my movie? It's about being a black lady. Uh, so it's being like as artsy as it is, it is very like open to you understanding where it's coming from. Yeah. And then there's also like drone strike footage and like, experimental like images of leaves that are sort of just run through a projector and like yeah so like a cameraless film where you use um objects placed on the film between a piece of glass and expose it in order to create that like stan brackage kind of yeah exactly yeah all these things just sort of like operate 
separately, but do come to like this like cohesive thesis that's just about like all the different ways that like black women occupy society, like mm-hmm. both like in nature and in urban settings and like in opposition to colonialism. The reason I say it reminded me of just film festivals is just like, I don't get to see this kind of work outside of like an art gallery setting. Yeah. Which is the natural setting of this film is art gallery specifically. Yeah. It started off as three separate like slide projector shows and like an installation. Yeah. So you'd walk into a room and one wall would show one set of footage, one wall would show the other and the third wall would show something else. And this particular version of it brings together all three tracks and interweaves them. Yeah. And that's what the single channel subtitle means. Like it used to be three channels. Now it's just one. Um, What did you think of this just as a whole? I thought it was really great. I mean, obviously it was very hard parts of it. It is emotionally pretty devastating, especially, you know, watching the uh, Philandro Castile footage because obviously, you know, his stepdaughter, or, you know, his girlfriend's daughter was there as a small child and having to like behave like an adult, which is like one of the most heartbreaking things. And then seeing that intercut with these children. I can't remember if she's filming this in Harlem or the Bronx, but you know, like there's kids like mugging for the camera. There's teenage girls who are like, oh, that boy over there, he always yells at me, but I'm not really worried about him. And like seeing these kids kind of behave normally, and she's intercutting that on purpose with this really heartbreaking footage, which was, you know, hard to watch. But then there's these moments where here she is at this beautiful artist retreat in this idyllic colonial paradise in, you know, south of france or wherever monet's like particular like uh gardens were the water lily gardens i think giverny is like the giverny document i think giverny is like the area that that garden is in or something oh okay that makes sense um but yeah just like her like enjoying this colonialist paradise of these like perfectly shaped trees and trimmed lawns and hedges and the anger that you know she feels that suddenly that oppression that she faced elsewhere she's not feeling here and it's because like you know the racial structure is so different and because she's now in this exalted position of being at this artist retreat and and she's feeling like this acceptance that she hasn't felt in a while but then at the same time she's also not physically in the united states while these like awful atrocities are happening and she's still in this beautiful place where this isn't happening to her and just like the rage she feels at like the injustice of it all it was really astonishing it's a lot like it is like emotionally heavy Mm -hmm. and it is like intellectually I don't want to say exhausting, but complicated. You have to do a lot of work as a viewer for this. Because I remember there was one part you struggled with, which was the drone footage from, you know, obviously Obama was a well-read president. He was a somewhat progressive person. But then a lot of his geopolitical policies still killed a lot of black women and still killed a lot of people of color. Um, So like watching this drone footage where you could be walking down the street, doing nothing at all, and suddenly you're blown up. And you had no warning. You had, like, you could just be struck dead at any moment. Like, it was kind of like the message she wanted to get across. Like, all these other ways that people are not safe in the world that we don't even think about because, like, that's not, like, something that could happen to us. There's not really a chance that a plane's just going to drop a bomb on me personally right now. And just, like, her, like, asking you to make those mental leaps with her and you can't really even be very concrete about any of your personal interpretations of the stuff no either. no because it is 
poetic. Like, it's loose. It also depends on what you've read and, like, your, like, sociopolitical background, what you bring to the table. So it is going to be a different film for different people who watch it. Which is the same as, like, going into an art gallery where, like, these movies are on loop and you, you, as a viewer, are choosing what image to look at of the three screens at a time. So, like, she is a little bit trying to recreate that experience or at least, like, boil it down to something kind of essential and digestible. And then you have Nina Simone interrupting every now and then with... I don't know, just an incredibly confrontational and stunning performance. Something I had never seen from her before. She's always like... Great. Yeah, attention commanding. But yeah. uh, this in particular is just really off-putting and like like really meditative. Like She's like trying to get the audience to think in a different way. And she's trying to get them to interact. Yeah. Like she, she keeps asking them to sing the song. And nobody wants to sing over her because they paid to see her. She's like, no, no, you sing this part now. You will do it. Because I'm telling you to. I'm on the stage and you're not. And people are still like, I don't, I don't want to. And the movie is like kind of a work of protest in kind of the same way. It is like directly confrontational to you as a viewer. Yeah. It was really interesting stuff. I got to say my favorite movie we saw at the festival was a local documentary, though, and a lot more straightforward than the Giverny document. Uh, It's called To Decadence with Love. It is a single weekend document of two local drag queens, uh, Frankie and Laveau Contraire, uh, in Decadence Weekend, I believe 2019, from Thursday to Sunday. If you're not from here, Decadence is basically like our Pride Weekend. Like, it is, like, a local, basically, like, southern region gay celebration where people come in from all over the country, really, in the world. It's a party in the French Quarter for four days. And Laveau, Contraire, and Frankie, for that entire weekend, just work constant gigs all over town. Yeah. And And it's in August, usually, or early September, because it's uh, Labor Day weekend. Yes. So it's hot. hot. And it's the first event of our fall calendar, essentially, because in the summer... There are no festivals. There are barely any gigs. It's, it's too, too hot, hot for tourists. Tourists don't come to town. Touring bands don't come to town. There's so little going on culturally. So this is like the very first event to mark the beginning of the fall season, which, you know, we'll go into Voodoo Fest and Halloween and then, you know, roll into Mardi Gras. And I think the movie tries to capture like the labor that goes into like working those gigs because the only interviewees re- really are... Um, these two drag queens, other people working the same shows as them, and these like women rideshare drivers, like Uber and Lyft drivers, who drive them from gig to gig. They get interviewed in the same like way as the queens, which kind of creates this like labor divide between the audience and the people working the um, the festival. Yeah. Uh, what really stuck out to me though, and like what I really value about this is like one of our favorite things to do, like you and I, is to go to local drag shows. Yes. And in recent years, that scene here has changed so tremendously from when I was a kid. It used to be like more like traditional Southern pageant drag. Yeah, pageant drag, a lot of like covers of, you know, the classic divas. Caked on makeup. Big wigs. Yeah. And it's gotten a lot more avant-garde mm-hmm. and cabaret style and a lot less rigid. It's not like female impersonation anymore. It's like gender fuckery. Like, the walls have just broken down in, like, these really exciting ways, and there's, like, so much room for so many different kinds of, like, art. Yeah, you don't just lip sync. You can sing your own track. You can do burlesque. You can do trapeze art. You can breathe fire. Whatever you want, essentially. Practical gore effects sometimes. Yeah, you know? (laughs) Spray your audience in blood or some kind of semen substitute. Whatever. 
And I missed this very much. Like the last like social event you and I went to was a um, Joni Mitchell drag tribute show in March, which is very odd. Very silly. Choice. Like yeah. I like Joni Mitchell, but I'm not like the biggest fan of Joni Mitchell. And yet I felt compelled to go to this as my last actual event before lockdown. But okay, even at that show, right? Like our friend CCV Dementh, who's been on the show and is in Crew Divine with us, she did... Joni Mitchell as Divine in Female Trouble. Yes. What a fucking weird <laughs> act. And like, that's the kind of stuff that I value in the city. And especially like Frankie and Laveau Contraire work so much. And they're at so many of those gigs. They are two of the hardest working queens in the city. And that's kind of the movie's like main anchor is just like how hard they work and like following them around to get a glimpse of the scene. So yeah, that's, that's what I really appreciate about this. I don't know if you felt like that emotional upswell, like watching think something we kind of participate in from the fringes documented for posterity you know yeah no i really loved that they documented this particular weekend um because you know the older generation will always talk this way about you know oh how decadence was better in the past and you know it's just not the same as it used to be so that's always going to be a conversation but i do think some fundamental things about decadence are changing like public sex is no longer allowed and it's more family friendly now people want to bring their kids because they want to show like that they are gay positive and so they'll bring their kids to decadence and it's like ah but decadence isn't for kids i'm glad that you're like being good parents and being accepting but like also don't bring your kids maybe so like yeah it's become more commercial it's become more family friendly it's been a long time since i've seen a blowjob in the street in the sunshine now they're in the back of the bar yeah <laughs> kids can't go in the bars anyways true um but yeah so it is capturing this event as it's changing and then it all is also it does this great job of capturing how exhausting decadence is or for us you know our scene is mardi gras so but mardi gras the last few days of mardi gras you're just constantly moving and doing things and going from point A to point B and building costume and getting into costume, getting out of costume, and then going to the next thing. Um, so this does a really good job of catching that feeling and capturing it. So, you know, you do a nighttime gig from midnight to two, you sleep for a couple hours, you go do a brunch gig, then you do an early evening gig, and then you do another night gig, and then you wake up and you do an afternoon gig, and then another night gig, and it's just constant, constant, constant movement and that is hard to capture, I think, sometimes, um, because we only see, you know, one out of those seven shows yeah. that one of them might be at. And so... I kind of got the sense that that was Laveau Contreras' like, life in general anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's always just around and, like, always athletic in her drag. Like, she is very physically present and, like, ecstatic when she's working. So it was kind of cool just to see her, like, tireless... Um, work ethic on display here yeah but also like it does capture the whole scene too it's not just about those two queens yeah no they they talk to the other performers who are with them and you know some of those performers are even more out there uh, and really weird and avant-garde so i'm glad they like captured some of those people mary boy who's one of our favorites apostrophe like, they're great tarot cards mm -hmm. gail king kong who we love so much probably the queen we've seen the most because they do shows like Around the block. Five minutes away from our house. And we went to high school together. Yes. Big sweetie. Biggest sweetie. And so, yeah, they capture all these other people's profiles. And then also, like, I feel like I see Laveau Contraire a lot. So I feel like I know that character really well. But Frankie has always been more of an enigma to me. I've never really known exactly what character they're playing because they, they always feel slightly different. 
And I don't see them as often. So like, this was really great getting to see them talk about like, oh, their big passion is like mime and clown. They were obsessed with mimes and clowns as a kid. And so like, this is like where they get to explore some of that weirdness and how they feel about their gender identity and like fluidity and also their aspirations. Like they were hoping to, you know, 2020, they were hoping to spend in New York. They're hoping to get gigs there and like kind of spend more time there. And then I'm sure Corona has really disrupted those plans and derailed yeah. those plans for Frankie. Um, the funny thing about the mime work is that my favorite Frankie thing I ever saw was when they were the host for this like divine themed mm. drag night. Uh, the Ace Hotel, they were, you know, doing the MC work between the other acts and there, you know, were these very drunk, obnoxious, like bachelorette party people in the balcony who were like interrupting the show. And Frankie was like doing amazing crowd work that night, like making fun of them and getting them to behave. But in this like fun, charming way that also tricked them into giving Frankie all their money. Right. It was amazing to see that crowd work. So I don't know. They can do a lot more than just like they're doing a lot of like artsy miming in this movie. I don't think it fully captured what Frankie's capable of. Maybe. No. Yeah. No. But that's hard to do in a, you know, 80 minute local documentary where you're trying to cover so much about this city all at once. Yeah. And that was, that was one criticism I had of the film was that it, I think it did try to do too much because as important as it was for them to include these working class stories from their uh, rideshare drivers, that never wove into the rest of the story. It felt very separate because it was these like female drivers who were saying things like, oh yeah, I don't really fuck with the the decadence crowd too much, but man, you know, this is like the biggest night as far as making money for me personally. And then other people being like, yeah, no, so I lived through the AIDS crisis and I lost a lot of friends and, you know, so I just really like, you know, getting to actually see decadence, uh, even though I don't really participate in it myself because um, it reminds me of being 18 and like having just moved to the city from like Bunky or some other shit town in Louisiana. The only connection I could really make was that they were working just as hard as these two, you know, drag performers. So like, there's like a labor connection there, mm -hmm. but it is very off balance. Like the drag Queens are like 80, 90% of the narrative and the um, rideshare drivers are like the remainder of it. So yeah, it's just kind of off. Even the way they filmed it made it, I think helped keep that artificial, like, wall between them because you know when they filmed the drag performers they were filmed head on and as they were moving and it was dynamic the interviews with the rideshare drivers were inevitably from the back seat so they're in the back seat filming the driver as the driver is taking them somewhere and then sometimes they'd be parked and be turned around from their seat facing the camera but it was still this like i'm just the rider while you're the driver kind yeah. of a feeling so it was never very dynamic the shots were always kind of static so yeah. i think like just the vast difference in the type of filming they were doing really made it feel like it was disconnected from the rest of the documentary i can see that the only thing they're really trying to capture there is just like how many goddamn ubers you have to take from gig to gig when you're working that many uh, different clubs around the city it's not worth it having a car most of the time. <laughs> but for that weekend, you need to get everywhere and you need to get everywhere fast because you need time to get into your hair and makeup and get ready. So yeah, and, and, I mean, it's good to like include that labor voice. Like there's so many people who have to come together and who are not paid nearly enough to make decadence happen. There are the barbacks and the bouncers and the bartenders and the people who make the food and the people who work in the ER who stitch people's foreheads up and they bash their head on the cobblestones and, you know, all these people who make decadence work. 
And most of them we never really get to see or celebrate. Yeah. But that's a different movie. This is a drag movie. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the thing I most valued was just like having a document, especially of like the always lounging cabaret, like that weirdo drag scene. Like I feel like a lot of those people graduated from the New Orleans drag workshop in particular. It felt nice to like have this like clear encapsulation of like something I appreciate as an audience. Yeah. Because in a couple years, those drag queens either aren't going to be doing drag anymore or they're going to have gone on to a bigger city and aren't going to be here anymore or their drag is going to change and be completely unrecognizable to what it is now. So I feel like it's very valuable capturing that stuff right now because even like some of my favorite people have now left and moved to other places already to like look for bigger opportunities Um, because our drag scene can only really take you so far. I think it's kind of the attitude a lot of people have. It's a lot of those same people working the same venues in different configurations. <laughs> I don't get tired of it, but I'm sure they do. So earlier I said that the last thing we went to socially was a drag show in March, which is somewhat of a lie because for this film festival, we went to an in-person screening. Yeah, but before COVID really right, right, locked right. down, <laughs> that was the last thing we did. We've done something since. Yes. We left the house. Uh, as an inflatable screen in the Lafitte Greenway, mm-hmm. um, the chairs were all distanced, like very far apart. It was a very nice experience to be outside and watching a movie in person for once. It like, was a nice, crisp, chill night, so we could bundle up and yeah. still be comfortable. Uh, the film, too, is like a, a movie I've been looking forward to watching for a while. Mm. Um, it did like international film festivals last year. It's called Undina. It's the new film from Christian Petzold. Uh, previous works were Phoenix and transit uh what i kind of think of him as is someone who does these like really outlandish over the top kind of like concepts but does them in these very straightforward like well regimented ways like they're like very down-to-earth executions of like unreal artificial premises yeah they're very modern usually in their setting and they're very kitchen sink realism but that's a good description with really really outlandish premises yeah Undina, too, like the reason I was excited about this in particular is it's like a kind of a aquatic horror fairy tale um, from a like Hans Christian Andersen tradition. It's the traditional Little Mermaid, the one where being human physically paints her, although that wasn't really talked on in this, but also that curse that if the person that she falls in love with falls in love with someone else, she will turn into seafoam if she does not kill them. And in this case, you wouldn't catch the fairy tale aspect initially. He plays it mostly as a breakup story on that conditional premise you just said. Like, she's getting broken up with Undina, the titular character, outside of her job by this, like, asshole boyfriend who's, like, leaving her. And she says, you cannot leave me. I will have to murder you. That's, like, the opening scene in the film at this, like, cafe. And there's, like, two breakups in this cycle. She falls in love with another man after that horrific breakup. And she doesn't initially kill the guy she promises to murder. Um, But as she falls in love with another guy and this like cycle starts over again, you're sort of like worried whether or not she's going to follow through on that initial promise. Mm -hmm. And then she becomes more and more connected to these like underwater dives. Her new boyfriend's like a deep sea, like oil rig type, like technician. Yeah. He does like scuba dive uh, welding on like dams and aquifers and like waterways. Yeah. So we start with a breakup and then we go into like that initial like puppy love stage in a new relationship and that eventually comes to its own breaking point and then everything sort of falls apart and the promises of the murder and the intrigue from the fairy tale come to fruition and all in this like very muted dramatic way. 
to where the drive of the story is not necessarily the like fantasy horror angle. It's more this like relationship drama. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward relationship film with a lot of really good realistic acting, um, very convincing performances. And, you know, no flashy set design, no fat flashy special effects, really. Just this very intensely portrayed romance and dissolution of a romance and the drama that comes with those things. And I gotta say, that's not necessarily for me. <laughs> like, my preferred version of this movie has already been made a few years ago. It was called The Lore. It is a Polish disco horror mermaid musical phantasma. I like that like over the top glam version of the same story, but I, I have to admit that like this is really well done. Oh yeah, it's just no, not I really enjoyed speed. some of the performances. Um, the lead actress I know got a lot of accolades for her role as Undina. Yeah, her name's Paula Beer, and they said at the screening that she won um, Berlin. Yeah, the Berlindale Film Festival. Um, she won like the Golden Lion for like best actor, but she wasn't our favorite actor in the movie. I don't think. No. I mean, she was great. Um, I really liked her, you know, playing this creature who is not human, but completely like not acknowledging the not human part of it. She, she's just a normal human woman, but like, you know, juggling her job and her breakup and her falling in love and falling out of love. And that was good, but she was not our favorite. No, our favorite was her second love interest. Yeah, his name's Franz Rogowski. He was so fucking adorable and charming. Like, I fell in love with him. Like, the way, like, that they have their meet cute is such an odd, weird thing. And it works so well. And then throughout, like, the beginning of this relationship, it's just, like, he does everything, like, perfect. Like, he's so cute and charming. Yeah. And you kind of keep waiting for something terrible to happen. To him? (laughs) I don't know. I was kind of expecting their relationship to sour like the first one. I thought that was going to be the cycle that he would like betray her in some way, but instead it's a much more tragic turn. I don't want to give away too much, but the relationship does end, but it it really is like kind of heartbreaking, especially since they were like so cute together. And yeah, no, they would have had the tragedy not happened. She might've still had to murder someone, (laughs) but I think they would have stayed together. I think they would have survived it, but that's not how it works out. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about in the Giverny document how that movie, like, has all these dissociative kind of images and you have to, like, put their meaning together. Yeah. I think this one does that a little bit, too, with her job. Mm -hmm. She's, like, an urban development historian who specializes specifically in the reunification of Berlin. And there are lengthy, like, academic lectures in this about, like, Berlin's modern urban landscape and, like, the history of how it got there. And there's a lot of train rides of her going from her inner city job out to these like sort of industrial locations where he's working underwater to like see her new boyfriend. And you just get like a very academic, like kind of a cold look at the city and what where it is today. And I don't know that I can totally draw a connection to that versus the fairy tale at the at the core of it. Well, I might be grasping at straws here, but Part of it is the push and pull between modernity and our history. So modern Berlin is a city that is unsentimental in a lot of ways, right before unification. So at the end of East Germany, 
there was a lot of modernist housing being built. There was a lot of uh, utopianism going on, um, both on West Germany and in East Germany, of these uh, utopianist uh, housing projects and developments and these brutalist uh, monuments to, you know, either capitalism or socialism, depending on which side of the wall you were on. And now Germany's kind of going in this other direction where a lot of these brutalist monuments are being destroyed and being replaced by the Beaux-Arts palaces that of royalty that once stood in their places. So there is this weird push and pull between modernity and traditionalism. And I feel like that's also man's relationship to folklore and stories. It's magic versus science. And so she was the person who could link those two things together and tell you the history between like why we shifted from magic to science and now back to magic, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's also like literarily, that's what the movie is doing too, is it's doing a modern fairy tale, Mm -hmm. like in a very like direct way. Yeah. So that is definitely like a push and pull. And it is interesting that she, who is this mythical creature in particular, is the one that has this job that like explains how the modern world got here. So she would, she would be the most knowledgeable on the subject. Yeah. Because apparently (laughs) she's quite old. Um, The person she's in a relationship with in the second half of the film you know, in his diving job, he does, like, come across her name carved into a bridge. And he's not, like, treating it like anyone else has ever had this name. He's like, no, it's your name. And she kind of treats it that way, too. Like, no, that's actually my name. Somebody carved my particular name. Like, no one else has ever been named Undina. Undinas are not creatures that exist anywhere else. Like, I'm the only one. And then just kind of treat that matter-of-factly, which is kind of fun. And also, like, there's these really great dream sequences that she keeps having. The particular place where her boyfriend is working is an old, old pond that has this somewhat mythical catfish that lives in it. Yeah. Uh, the old man. And he's, you know, he's he's a whopper. He's a fishtail fish. He's, <laughs> he's 12 feet with a mouth that's two feet across. And, you know, he could eat a small car. <laughs> and then they actually see it underwater. Yeah. And, like, people don't believe them. They're like, no, no, no. That's a fun myth. Giant catfishes don't exist. And it's like, well, yeah, neither do Undina's. <laughs> Yeah, I also um, was kind of fantasy casting the two of them um, in like an American remake. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see uh, Nicole Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix doing this exact thing. I don't think it would be as good. Like, No, because I mean, they'd be aping set piece that's already happened. Right. Like, they'd be like trying to imitate these two other actors, although there is a strong physical resemblance between Joaquin Phoenix and the man in this film. Yeah. I think she looks a little bit like Nicole Kidman sometimes too. Depending sometimes. on the shot. When she's angry, she yeah. does. When she's angry, she gets that like lightning in her eyes look that Nicole Kidman does so well. But I do have to admit, like, just in the back of my head, like the lore was just constantly on my mind towards the end. I was like, I've seen this pattern play out in a much more Brandon kind of way. Yeah. Um, so that did kind of like separate me from the, the art a little bit, but I, I do like the movie. I think it's well done. Overall, my favorite film of the festival was the Decadence documentary, To Decadence with Love. Uh, did, did you have a standout? Oh, geez. I never even thought about a favorite, honestly. Yeah, they're very different. You know, I don't think I had a favorite this year. I mean, I liked everything I saw. Yeah. But yeah, no favorites this year. Lots of lovely things. That's fair. Everybody's a winner. Ranking art against other artists, really. An empty <laughs> exercise anyway. But I do it for fun. <laughs> <laughs> so... I don't know if you will be able to see Two Decadence with Love in any kind of official way. Like it might end up on like a Vimeo channel for the director or something. But if you're interested in the local New Orleans drag scene, I think keeping an eye out for that movie would be good. Um, The one from today that you'll likely be able to access 
um, outside of a film festival environment would be Undina. I expect that'll be on some streaming service like Mubi or Criterion Channel. Yeah, sometime 100%. soon. Yeah. And I'm not sure what we'll be doing next week because we are recording this episode a little ahead of time. Um, so just come back to the Swampflix podcast feed. We're doing weekly episodes. CC might be back before the next film festival. We're I'll not do sure. my best. Yeah, <laughs> no promises. But hey, if you want me to come back, like and subscribe and give us a review on the Apple uh, iTunes store. We don't talk about that a lot, but like... We really know, should. Yeah, review <laughs> us. Podcast Addict, the podcast catcher or whatever that app is called, um, has its own review section. We have none there. Oh. We haven't gotten a review since Mr. Hot Dog Boy, uh, which warmed our hearts so much. We did a whole episode around how much we loved that review. Reach out to us. Even just send us an email or a Twitter. I don't know. We're around. Yeah, you can find us at swampflix.com. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Don't